We uh, will be reading this morning from uh, Revelation 21, so if you want to be turning in your Bibles to uh, Revelation 21, that'll be our Scripture reading for this morning. And while you're doing that, I wanted to make an announcement before I forget because I am uh, liable to forget. I know, it's a shocker. It's a shocker. Uh, If it's not written down in front of me, I'm probably not going to remember to say it. (laughs) That uh, this evening, uh, we are having our um, prayer service uh, this evening at 6 p.m., and um, we've taken that on sort of as a new way of uh, having our prayer service uh, the second Sunday in the evening of every month. Uh, We join together at 6 o'clock, and we try to be done by 7 o'clock, and we have a time uh, of singing. We have a, a brief time in the Word, and then we spend time praying together. So I would encourage you to uh, come join us there. It's a, uh, an encouraging time to pray together uh, with the body of Christ. And so that will be this evening, and I will endeavor to remind you at the end. But if I don't, you can remember. Tonight, 6 o'clock. Revelation chapter 21, and uh, we're going to read just the uh, first eight verses this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts before you this morning, and we worship you. We read these words about the end, and we take great comfort and great courage that our greatest enemies will be finally, fully, completely, and ultimately defeated. And we who are in Christ will have life with you forever. You will be our God and we will be your people. And Father, we anticipate that consummation. We see foretastes of it now. We see uh, aspects in which this is already uh, being fulfilled in our lives, and, and, and we, we praise you for uh, those truths even now. And we eagerly anticipate when it will all be concluded and death will be no more. And we will be in your presence fully and eternally. We look forward to that, Father, because we, we worship now. We are able to worship now because we are in Christ. We get to worship you. We get to bow down before you and have right relationship with you. We get to have you as our Father, and so we do worship you. But we recognize that even as we worship you now, there, there is a taint of some temptation or some 
sin or, or, or some distance or some lack of faith or something. And there will come a time when there will be nothing between us and you. And we will get to worship fully and know you fully. But here we are this morning. And you have been gracious to give us your word, which tells us about you and tells us how we can come into right relationship with you, how it is we can worship you and who you are and who we are and and what the end will be like. And so we open your book. We ask that you administer to us this morning by your Spirit, even as this uh, book is open, as your word is proclaimed, we ask that you would work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Our uh, passage today, and actually this is not going to be the passage we're going to focus on mainly as we have been looking at uh, what Scripture teaches regarding Advent. It is Advent season, uh, Christmas season. We talk about the coming of Christ. And so in preparation for uh, our time today and actually uh, all of our times this month, what I did was I spent some time reading, focusing on the first chapters of the Bible to see kind of where everything begins and what kind of themes were there. And then I went to the last chapters of the Bible and I read those to see what sort of themes and whatnot were there. And, and I saw a lot of connections. I saw topics being discussed in each that uh, clearly made it uh, evident to me that those were intended by God to be something that we catch when we read Scripture. And then I went to the Advent story. And I read in the Gospels about the coming of Christ, and I saw those same themes repeated, many of them. And so that study has led to the things we're going to be talking about uh, this week and, and in the, the weeks to come as well as we look at these broad themes in Scripture, the emphases that God has placed there uh, that He wants us to pick up on. And often, when you and I go to Scripture and, and, uh, and we read what is there, we sometimes go and find encouragement and, and, and we find things that, that, uh, that brighten our day or, or help us look up and, and, uh, and be encouraged in Christ, etc. And there are other times uh, that we encounter subjects that we would rather not study, like suffering, right? You, sometimes you're reading in the Bible, sometimes you're uh, forced to face the fact that we deal with suffering, and I would just rather not kind of learn about that or talk about that. But sometimes you go to Scripture, and you see that God's concern is our concern, and that is the nature of today's topic. We are talking about the advent of life. I was able to attend two different funerals yesterday. And I guess there were a couple of more in town that were scheduled. Death is something that we deal with. And we understand. I think every person understands the value of life. And today we want to look at that value and how we see it being emphasized even in the nature of Advent and Christ coming into this world. And so what we're going to do is kind of do a, a tour through the Bible uh, in a manner of speaking. So you'll want to turn back to Genesis chapter 1, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, all stories begin there, and this one does as well. As we uh, look back to creation, we look back to when God was first forming all things, and He, he created the heavens and the earth and, and the bodies of water and the land and all that. And, uh, and then we see in chapter 1 and verse 20 that He moves on to a new type of creation, something new. These are the living sea creatures. That He creates life, not just plant life, but, but a, a living sentient being or, or, or somehow it, it, it is a living sea creature. And then in verse 24, we see that he does the same thing on the land, that he creates these living creatures. And that's something new. That's different because a rock is different from, you know, a cow. There, there's, a, there's a difference in, in, uh, in that creation. And so he creates life in that sense. And that's an amazing thing when, when we ask uh, questions, if we're in discussion with someone who who uh, believes that all of this just came about by um, just some kind of evolutionary process, that, that there was a, a puddle of goo somewhere and lightning struck and life was, was formed. We, we all know that that's not how life come, comes about. Life is more precious. Life is more special. Life is more unique than that. Uh, 
Well, we read here about how it came about. God made it. Yes, he made the, the, the puddles of this and the, and the mountains of that, and he made the, 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 the stars in the sky and, and, and the, the water in the sea and everything in between. But there's something special and unique about life when he creates life. Well, then we get to chapter 2 and verse 7, and we see about uh, the formation of the man. Right, that there in verse 7 of chapter 2, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. He gathered up some dirt and fashioned man. And life wasn't created yet. It wasn't until he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life that the man became a living creature. And so you, you've, got, you've got the creation of the, uh, of the, the, the creatures, the, the fish and the, and the dolphins, and, and you've got lions and, and horses and things like that created. But man is special. Man, for man, he takes dirt, which is not all that special, but into it he breathes the breath of life, and it be, man becomes a living creature. And life is created within the man. And so at the very beginning of creation, life at creation, we see that life is given by God. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't arrive somewhere. It doesn't uh, just happen uh, mystically or something. God causes it. God gives life. But even there, life was not only given. It seems like there's a, a greater life promised, one that was better even than the one that that uh, the man and, and Adam and Eve experienced in the beginning. There's a, a promise of a greater life. We have two hints about that, at least in uh, chapter 2. We see in verse 16 and 17, there's a command given. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Right? There's a, there's a restriction given. And God says, if you cross this line, there will be death. So that implies, if you don't cross that line, in other words, if you obey, there will be life. There's some, some uh, greater expectation. There's something uh, beyond just this bare uh, life that they uh, lived, though it was a wonderful one. They had breath, and they had each other, and they had this wonderful creation around them. And most important, they got to walk with God in the cool of the day. And he says, there's this prohibition given. If you break this prohibition, if you break this commandment, then you will die. The implication being, if you keep it, then you will have some kind of life. But there's another hint given in chapter 2 of a greater life promised, and that's in chapter 2 and verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. There's a tree that gives life in some sense. And we don't understand a lot about that. There's not detail given here. But we do know that later on when they sin, they're barred from admittance to that tree. And so there's, there's, a, there's a hint there. There's a promise. There's, a, there's an idea that there's, there's a, a greater life to anticipate. But unfortunately, as you and I know, the story doesn't go that direction. The path to obedience in life was not the path that was taken. Instead, they enter into sin. They, enter, they end up forfeiting life, and thus death enters the picture. And so you get to Genesis chapter 3, and you have life forfeited or death entering in. Right? And we remember the story there that you have this discussion of life and death even uh, in chapter 3 and verse 3 where the woman is representing uh, what God's uh, prohibition had been and she said, uh, but God said, and this is, uh, this is the woman saying this, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, verse 3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see, there's an opposite to life and, that, and that's death. There's, the, there's a promise of life, but there's also the warning about death. And, of course, what does the serpent say? You won't surely die. That's a myth. That's a myth. Don't you know God was just using big language? 
Don't you know that that was just, just a warning? God didn't really mean that. He meant something else, right? And so you have this idea of, of death, and, and the woman realizes, well, this is the instruction given. This is the warning given. And the serpent comes along and says, just disregard that warning. And, of course, we know how the story goes. They disregard that warning, and they fall into sin. And we see death beginning to form in different ways. We see harmony uh, uh, with one another is lost. Harmony with God is lost. You, you can work through chapter 3 and you can see the breakdown of every relationship that exists and, and, and where there had been harmony, now there was, now there was friction. And we see that because uh, they have done this, they will return back to the dust from which they came. There will be death. And the, this body that was, that was fashioned by God and into this body God breathed the breath of life and man became a living uh, a creature will return back to the dust, the stuff that God used to fashion there. And you'll see that, that uh, they're, they're in, they end up being separated from the garden. They be, they're locked out from access to that tree of life. There's a lot of imagery here about death. This is strong language about death. And then, of course, as you go into future generations and you, you look at Genesis chapter 4 and you see that, that death is not a unique thing with the first couple, but right off the bat you have one son killing another son. Death is perpetuated. And then as you read on in chapter 5, the, uh, the author has put it in such a way that, that we see the refrain again and again, this so, so-and-so had children and lived this many years and died. And so-and-so had children and lived this many years and died and died and died and died and died. We're to get the point. When, of course, it goes on beyond them, right? Because I was at two funerals yesterday. And we still deal with death. And death has been something that uh, we have run up against uh, ever since Genesis chapter 3. And so death is a, a reality, though, if, if you think back to how it started... Where, where life was given, life was breathed into this creature from the dust. And, and promise of greater life was given. Warning about what would happen if they disobeyed. And, 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 and yet that life, that, that, that beautiful life that we possess, that we value, that we hold on to, that we know is important, is lost. It's forfeited. It's broken. And death enters the picture, and of course, that's how the Bible starts, and we see the results of it today. But I'm not here to talk primarily about death. I want to talk about Advent uh, instead. And so when we get to uh, the story of Advent, we realize that right in the midst of that very uh, uh, death, when, when death first entered in, when disobedience first came in, you had this promise given that the woman would bear a seed who would bruise the head of the serpent, crush the head of the serpent at the expense of his own heel. But there would be this conflict. There would be one who would come, who would carry that out, who would bring deliverance, who would uh, bring back life. Of course, you see the anticipation of that all through the Old Testament, and we get to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. We turn the page from the conclusion of Malachi, the conclusion of the Old Testament where we are anticipating, we're hoping, we're expecting, we're awaiting the fulfillment of that promise that was made to, uh, about the woman, the, the, the promise that was made all through the course of the Old Testament. We get to the beginning of, of uh, the New Testament here in Matthew, and we read again about life. And again, it's a very, very special life. Look at verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now how did the first Adam, how did the first man receive life? He didn't inherit it from the animals. Uh, it didn't, it didn't uh, just uh, happen by itself. He was fashioned, and then the breath of life was breathed into him. Miraculously, man, this, this 
dirt, dirt statue, as it were, miraculously receives life because God gives it to him. And in, in Jesus, we see a very similar thing happen. A virgin who has known no man. She, before she ever came together with her husband, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. As God had breathed life into the dust to form man. He conceived life in the womb of the virgin. It's a miraculous life. And, and so we see the Advent story here. It begins with a very similar miraculous beginning of life as happened with Adam. And so we see Jesus' life uh, pictured there and we see it begins. And, and, and then we go on through the story though and we realize that that. For Jesus, life wasn't the only reason he came. Life was not to be the only thing he experienced. That Jesus was going to, of course, encounter uh, death. And that was a large part of why he came. That, that for him, his death was not a detour. For Jesus, death was not plan B. It was why he came. For him, death was central why he had taken on flesh in the first place. As death entered the experience of humanity because of the sin of the first Adam, so death was to be experienced by the Savior, the last Adam, also because of the sin of the first man. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Powerful verses here. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he came, to die in our place. And so, the, the miraculous beginning of Jesus' life, the, the wonder that we celebrate at Christmas time when we, when we think about the virgin conceiving, when we think about the, the Holy Spirit causing that to happen, when we think about God miraculously giving life in a, in a, in a womb that, that could not create life. We're drawn forward that that's not the end of the story. It has a purpose. It takes us somewhere, and it takes us to the death of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 is a passage we ought to spend a lot of time in. Today I just want to read a few verses out of that passage and see if you can catch the substitutionary language of one person dying for another person, of, of, of one person suffering on behalf of the sins of another, one, one person being put to death and crushed for the purposes of bringing redemption to someone else. Listen to this language. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. Our griefs placed on him, he bears them. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You get the substitutionary language right there on the page. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bears it. He carries it. He's the substitute. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, him stricken for our transgression. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. You get that language? This is why Jesus came, and this passage was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, and yet it, 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 it reads almost like a description of someone watching it happen and writing it down or, or, or someone meditating and reflecting on what has happened in the past. God is telling us in advance about what is going to happen. This is why Jesus came. Not the only reason, but this is why. That he would be a substitute in our place. The one who himself was righteous where Adam was not and where you and I have not been. And yet the one who gave himself an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. And so life, this wonderful, miraculous life that we celebrate at Christmas time, where, where uh, the, the virgin conceives of the Holy Spirit points us somewhere, points us to the death of Christ. But, but not only there. That's just one stop along the road. We see also, as we continue to ponder life and the Advent, we're driven to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because Jesus uh, was given this miraculous life at birth, body created in the virgin's womb, and then he dies in our place. But of course, he doesn't stay dead. His death is not the end of the road. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 some powerful, powerful verses about the resurrection of Christ and about their significance. Read with me starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you, this is Paul speaking of writing, of course, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, this isn't just some aside. It's not just uh, some idea. It's not just some philosophy that, yeah, uh, Jesus continues and, and, uh, or, uh, you know, um, you know he's, he, he's still at work by his Spirit or something like that. No, he's saying Jesus actually bodily, physically rose from the dead. And this is a key, integral part of the gospel itself. It's not just some footnote. It's not just some notion that we maybe should also remember or, or talk about at Easter time. This is central to, it's key to the gospel itself. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance, and he just lists a couple of things. And one of them is the resurrection of Christ. The death couldn't hold him. And so when we think about Jesus, we, we, we think about his his life, the miraculous beginning, and we think about all that he did in his life with his obedience to the law and all the things that he taught, all the things that he suffered, and then we see him dying on the cross, and it's not done because God raised him from the dead. The, the payment was made in full, and he was raised. He was declared just. He was declared to be worthy to be in God's presence. He was de de declared uh, to, to be such that death could not hold him. Death had no grip on him because there was no sin, no taint of, of his, of course, but not even of, of mine anymore because it's been paid for. And so he's raised from the dead. And Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance just a couple of things, and this is one of them. But then he goes on to talk about what this what this resurrection of life was like, starting in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The resurrection wasn't a philosophy. It wasn't a notion. But nor did it take place in secret somewhere, as if it really did happen, but it was in a closed room, like, like in, a, in a hidden away place. It, it happened publicly. Not, not just so that a select few, the special ones who had received some kind of um, you know, unique uh, knowledge or opportunity, you know, the, the, they, they won the lottery, the golden ticket, and so they got to see Jesus. No, it wasn't, it wasn't just done 
in a quiet place. It was done publicly. It was done for many to see. It was public. It was out there. He appeared to this guy and that guy and this group and that group of 500? Hither and yon, the resurrected Jesus is appearing. And when he appeared to more than 500 at one time, that, that's amazing because that's not some delusion. That's not, that's not a person wishing so bad that Jesus would come back that he, that he you know, fasts for four days and, and then he gets weak and, and, and then he has a vision. Oh, I, I think I saw Jesus. This is 500 people seeing the same thing. It's objective. It objectively happened. It wasn't just a notion that someone dreamed up and then told someone else about. 500 together can testify to what they have seen. And even more than that, at the time Paul is writing this, he's saying, oh, by the way, most of those people are still alive, so go look them up. Go ask them. You can talk to them. Yes, some have died, but there, there are hundreds of these people running around who saw the resurrected Christ. Go talk to them, and you can learn the truth of what they're telling you. You can hear a corroborating account by them. And, of course, Paul himself was was blessed by having Jesus appear even to him. Even to him. He comments here about, about how it, amazing it was that Jesus would appear to him, verse 8, last of all as to one untimely born, because he wasn't with the group. He, he joined later on. He became a believer later on. But it wasn't just a timing thing. Why, why was it so uh, amazing for Paul? Well, it would have been amazing for anyone who saw the resurrected Christ, but for Paul particularly, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He wasn't just not one of them. He was directly opposed to them, and yet Christ appeared to him. He who, who, who had every vested interest not to believe in the resurrected Christ now is face to face with him. seeing the one who was raised from the dead. And so the resurrection of Christ is a key part of the story that his, his life, Jesus coming into this world and all that he did and his death and his resurrection are crucial for us to remember about what Jesus accomplished. But I said we were looking at the end also and we started by reading Revelation 21. And I think we, we can't get a full picture. We can't understand all that is uh, connected here with life in the Bible until we go to Revelation chapter 21. So go ahead and turn back there. Because at the end, re remember the book started. We started in, in Genesis 1, we looked at Genesis 2, and we saw about God creating life and how special and precious a thing it was. And that he would breathe the breath of life into that man that he had made from the dust. And so we saw that life was a key element, a key issue uh, at the very beginning of the story. And then, and then we know how all of that went. But now we get to the end. And what do we see being a theme again at the end? It's life. It's life. First of all, we need to understand what happened to death. Because when Adam and Eve sinned and they took of that fruit and death entered the picture, we saw the breakdown. We saw the destruction. We saw them being kicked out. We saw all that went on there. And we experience death even now. And what happens in the end? Well, let's start at the end of our paragraph in verse 8. We see that, that for some, death continues. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns, uh, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so we need to understand, first of all, that, that for some, death continues. It's a perpetual death, it's a perpetual being separated from God, it's a perpetual being separated from life, from all or any blessing that might come from God. And so when we talk about death, we're not just talking about some, some animal experience where the spark of life leaves our body and that's a terrible thing. There, 
for, for those who are, who are separated from God. And there's a, there's a, there's a list here of, of all of these things. And you might read through that and you might think, yikes. I, I, I kind of recognize a little bit of myself in there. Well, that's scary. And we need to let that sink in for just a moment so that we can realize that when Jesus came into this world, the life given within the, the virgin's womb, who, the man who grew up and was obedient to God, he was none of these things. Could we call Jesus ever cowardly? No. Faithless? He's faithful and true. Detestable? Murderer? No, he was murdered. But he himself protected life. He was holy. He was pure. He was, he was a genuine God worshiper. He was rightly related to God. He was perfectly and fully related to God rightly. Why was that? It was to fulfill all righteousness. Not because he lacked it, but because you and I lack it. Because our names might be found in verse 8. We might find ourselves there in verse 8. And we're driven to the place, if we will, if we will do so, to look to Christ, the one who has been obedient in these ways, the one who has obeyed God, who has every righteousness to give. When you read Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53 focuses on the, 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 the transmission of the sin from the sinner to the servant, to Jesus, who would be, so that it would be punished in him. But the righteousness is credited to us who have faith in him. His righteousness given to us so that, so that though we read through there and we might think, ooh, yeah, I've been cowardly. I've been maybe even many of these things. I have to have someone who is holy and righteous to look to. And I do. The one who came at Advent, Jesus, who obeyed in our place. But for all those who will die in this category, all those who will die apart from Christ, all those who will die and stand and give an account uh, on, on their own merit before God. The only expectation they can have is the second death, a perpetual dying, where they always die but are never dead. That's awful, and that's just awful. And so we, we see that death, death continues for some, but praise God, that that is not the whole story. And praise God that that is not the thrust of what is being taught in this passage. Go back to verse 3. Because for those who are in Christ, for those who realize, I do not want to stand before God and give an account based upon my own merit. Because I will be verse 8 if I do that. Those who realize I must have a righteous servant in my place. I must have the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. I must have Jesus. For all those who look to Christ that way, we, we, we read this. This is, this is beautiful. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Remember, Adam and Eve were shut out of Eden. They were, they were blocked. They were, their, their way to the tree of life was blocked. Their, their access to God in that way was, was blocked. But here, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. For all those who are in Christ, there will come a time when death of any kind will be no more. And it'll be done away with. And in its place, life is given. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Death shall be no more. So, so for, for all of us who are in Christ, 
There will come a time when, when death, the thing that we've been aware of since our earliest days, since, since certainly chapter 3 of the book, but in our own lives we've experienced uh, death of loved ones, we've brushed up against it ourselves, we have fear of it ourselves perhaps. There will come a time when that death is gone. It is done away for all those whose names are found written in the book of life. There is only life at the end. The resurrection of Jesus means that he has eternal resurrected life to give to others. To give to you and to me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also able to raise all those who are in Jesus. Look at verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty... I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Abundance, provision of life for all those who are in Christ. And remember, remember back in chapter 3 when they were booted out of the garden and access back to the tree of life was, was barred. Remember with the cherubim standing there with the sword, the flaming sword barring their way lest they get back to the tree of life. Look at chapter 22 and verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that is, in Christ, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Access back to the tree of life is given once again. That tree that we were barred from in the beginning, we have access to. That, that for everyone who is thirsty, He will give us to drink from the springs of life without payment, without measure. It's yours, life abundantly, life fully, life perfectly and completely with nothing hindering it, with nothing blocking the way. That's the story of life in the Bible. And that's ours, that kind of life, that kind of deliverance from death where, where death itself gets put to death on our behalf. That happens because of the advent, because of Jesus coming into this world to be born as a little baby boy, to take on humanity in our place. And so that's the story of life and Advent, and it's a beautiful story, and there, there's more that we could look at there. But I, I want to draw us to a, a close here, and I want to just make a couple of points of application. First of all, value life as a gift from God. Value life as a gift from God. God has placed us here at this time and what a brief time it is. There's a, a trend, and I don't understand it. There's a trend in our society that, that would think uh, suicide could be a, a legitimate option in many cases. I read, a, I read an article the other day about a Canadian man who was faced with homelessness. He was going to lose his home for some reason. And he wasn't able to get out of it. He didn't have family or anyone to take care of him and, and help provide for him and whatnot. So rather than face homelessness, he started the proceedings to move towards assisted suicide. So apparently that's a thing in Canada that you can pursue it that way, and it's It's evil. So, but, it, but in this man's mind, he, he valued having a home, being independent, more than he valued his life. Somehow, somehow it's, it's, become, it's become a way of thinking about our life that, that it's disposable. And it's not. You get one shot at this life. And glory will be more glorious. Uh, eternal life, life in heaven that we read about here in, in chapter 21 and chapter 22 is going to be far better than this life. But you've only got one shot at this life for a brief, brief time. And I could ask the oldest person in the room, how brief is that time? And they would tell you it's so brief. It's like a breath. And there are no do-overs. 
So value life. This is the opportunity we have in this life to trust Christ, to walk with Him, to, to serve Him, to get to know Him, to, 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 to experience God's forgiveness and blessing and grace, to receive it only in this life. In the next life, it's too late to make a decision like that. It's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. So value human life. And if, if, I, could, if I could somehow convince the whole generation of people, it seems like, it seems like for teenagers, this is, a, this is a, a new way of thinking, a new way of talking, a new way of valuing um, other things beyond life that I don't understand. And, and since I don't understand it, I'm not, I can't be angry at anyone about it or anything like that, but, but Scripture starts with the beautiful picture of God granting life miraculously to a creature from the dust. And it's a tragedy when, when, when that creature goes back to be in the dust again. Value life, it's a gift from God. But the second point of application, at the same time as we value life, let us not fear death. Let us not fear death. We've seen the rest of the story. I think part of what is so frightening to us about death, perhaps, is that it's an end. And you can't, you can't pierce that veil. You can't see through that. All you know is that my relationships, uh, my body, my experience in this life will, will, will end. And so there's a, that's something to fear. But folks, we've read the rest of the story. We know about resurrected life. We know about glory. We know about what it means that we will be united with God forever. Him as our God. We as His people. That we get to, we get to drink from the springs of life. We get to eat from the tree of life. The, the, the life then is, 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 is on a grander scale. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Without the temptations of this life and the scars and the, and the sins and the, and the, and the tendencies and, the, and, and all of the stuff that we deal with in this, in this life, this life is glorious. And that one will be so much more glorious. So let's not fear death. From fear of illness and death, some of us have sequestered ourselves away from the church and away from life in general because of fear of death. Isn't that ironic that fear for our life could cause us to make decisions that make us miss out on life? Death comes for us all in the Lord's time. But for the Christian, death is not the end. We are those to whom Jesus will give to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. We are those who get to eat freely from the fruit of the tree of life that was barred to our first parents when they sinned, but will be ours to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. And so let's don't fear the death of this body. We, we value life but it is not our greatest value. So let's don't fear death. Death, which entered our reality and experience when our first parents rebelled against God, will finally be gone for good. And in its place, we will have never-ending, blissful life in the presence of God and without the presence of sin. And this wonderful plot resolution, better than any possible resolution we could have ever hoped for, is brought about because of the one who entered right into our plight, miraculously born to the Virgin Mary, who lived his life as Adam and we should have, and faced in his body the consequences of our rebellion against God. And this he did so that death would die and life could be given freely to you and to me. And this is the connection between Advent, between Christmas and life. And we who were by nature dead in our trespasses, born dead in our trespasses and sins, 
by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, God has the ability to make alive with Christ by grace through faith for all who will believe Christ for themselves. The story of Advent is the story of life. It's the story of the gift of life. It came to us at the expense of the death of the Savior, but he didn't stay there. God made him alive. And by faith in Christ, we have that same life. We have it now in small pieces. We can see it now. We can see, we can see that we've been transferred from, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've gone from death to life. But there will come a time when we don't even face death of any kind in our future anymore. Praise God for that. And that's possible because of what Jesus did during this season. Let's pray. Father, we have uh, gone on a tour through your word looking at some highlights concerning life. We're grateful that you didn't leave us dead. You would have been right and just to do so. You would have been good and faithful to do so. But you didn't. You showed mercy to sinners like us. That you took, took us, the ones who have our own sin, evidence of death in our lives, who deserve death. You took our sin and placed it on your Son, the one who was born for us, that we celebrate this time of year. We are grateful that in Jesus we have life because of his death and resurrection. And I pray that this Christmas season we would take that message far and wide. I pray that we would talk to others about it, that we would take the opportunity to direct others to Christ and as the source of life, living water, bread of life. And I pray that we would take that message to heart as we look at this Christmas season, as we think about the church, as we think about our families and we think about our relationships and our own lives, that we would give you great praise and glory because of the life that we get to have in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Again, I want to uh, uh, remind you about the prayer service uh, that will be this evening at 6 o'clock. There will be a family up here to pray with you. They love to do that if you have a prayer request, if you have questions you need to ask or uh, something you just want to talk to them about. They would love to pray with you. I would encourage you to uh, come up here and do that. I want to close with these words from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.